Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I'm Aaron Schweitzer, publisher of The Source, with our co-hostess, the academically gifted Laurel Bronze. This podcast is powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. Listeners tune, tune in to find out how our community is dealing or not dealing with the new normal. Uh, Bruce Abernethy is here with us today. Bruce moved to Bend in 1992. He served on the Bend City Council for a total of 12 years. He was first elected in 2000 and served two consecutive terms with two years as mayor in 2007 and 2008. He was again elected in 2016 and then chose not to to run for re-election in 2020. He served on the board of the Ben Lapine School District and the Ben Park and Recreation District. Currently, he serves on the board of a number of organizations, including Central Oregon Community College, Bend International School, Camp Tamarack, Central Oregon Fuse, and many others. He attended Swarthmore College with a dual major in economics and political science, and then earned his Master of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Currently, he works as a grant writer for Ben Lapine Schools. Bruce, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. I know that you have been a uh, not only serving in, in political office, but have had a jam-packed number of other things that you've been doing. I remember catching up with you last year and um, just the number of things that you keep your fingers in. I, I can't imagine how you uh, keep yourself afloat and all that. Well, a couple things, people uh, along those lines, people have asked me like, how can you have been on, on city council for 12 years? And I tell people the partial lobotomy really helps. Um, <laughs> right. And then on the other, on the other front, um, I tell people that I belong to Boards Anonymous. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm very fortunate. My, my wife uh, is a family physician, so she's the primary breadwinner and she lets me do my hobbies. And I've got two, uh, two adult kids also, I'm very, very fortunate. The school district um, gives me a great deal of autonomy and they actually see that a lot of my work in various boards and things like that is consistent with helping make this a better community for our children to be raised. So I actually can, can spend a lot of time essentially on the district dying. But I, I feel very, very fortunate. I love living in this community. I love the people. I love what I do. Um, and so it's just a, it's a great opportunity. I feel very fortunate. So let, let's go back a little bit. In, in the 1990s, you came in on the one of the first big wave of transplants to Bend. I, I, I think you and I came in on that same wave uh, surfboard next I, to surfboard. I remember playing ultimate frisbee with you. <laughs> right, right. Those were the early days of the, of the Bend team. And then with your degree from the Kennedy School, it seems like you could have ended up anywhere, DC, a capital city somewhere, but you, you drew up into Bend instead. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, real quickly. Um, you know, I, uh, I I think I was kind of ready for coming back to the West Coast. I grew up, people who don't know, I grew up down in Palo Alto. My father was a professor at, at Stanford. Um, I'd spent 10 years back on the East School and graduate school. Um, the woman I was dating at the time said we were both really into outdoor stuff, said, hey, let's move to either Bend or Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> and I at least had people that live, relatives that lived in Oregon. And that got me on the same, uh, same time zone as my, as my folks. Um, and I was actually working more in the nonprofit sector at that point, uh, as, as opposed to um, being sort of a political, political consultant. Um, and so for me, you know, Ben, I knew a week after I moved to Bend, I remember calling my dad and said, hey, man, 
I have found my new home. You know, <laughs> didn't know what it was right. going to look at, but I just it was a nice it was a nice fit. And the the funny thing is, I first even though I moved here in '93, I, I got recruited by the Democratic Party to run for House District 54. And you know, back then, city was so much smaller. The district was all of Bend, Sun River, Lapine, all the way down into Northern Klamath County, and. The fact that I had a Harvard degree was actually used as a negative against me. <laughs> I didn't see that. Right. Didn't see the hat happening. Um, and uh, but you know, it, it's the kind of thing where I think I've realized that I'm probably overly book smart and underly street smart, and so that's been kind of a good approach as I go forward. I, I tell people you can absolutely, you can absolutely argue as to whether I'm any good at sort of public policy and, and government stuff, but I, I have at least been trained to do it. <laughs> well, they can't, they can't argue with volume. You know, <laughs> so when you first became a city council member in 2000, you were part of a new progressive majority that ran on the slow growth movement. And this group ended up firing the city manager and doing a few other things. And then decades later, you've gone on the record um, basically saying that the desire for slow growth was taken too far. And today, I think there's many Vendites who've come here and want to close the door behind them and stop the growth. So help us understand why slow growth didn't work then and why it won't work now either. Yeah, that's really, I mean, we absolutely, we ran on a slow growth down slate and uh, one of my compadres was uh, now district attorney, John Hummel. Um, and I think it was the kind of thing where back then, I mean, as fast as people think Bend is growing now on a percentage basis, it, it, was, it was six, seven, it might've been 8% one year. So it was growing very, very fast. I, I would say that I saw things through what I'm gonna call sort of an environmental lens. And I think if you, through that, I don't think there's any question that growth actually makes, makes the environment worse. I mean, you can look at it through economic, but you can look at it through other lenses where growth has positive aspects. But back then, I was really looking at it primarily through the environment. And, you know, really ran on a platform to see what we could do to, to slow it down. Like you said, we ended up firing the city manager, which, which I would argue set the city off on about a two-year pendulum uh, going back and forth. And if anything, the literally the next five elections, whether it's city council, park district, vote on the Ben Parkway, et cetera, actually were a repudiation of my getting elected and John getting elected in 2000. So this, this, this large shift to the left in 2000 went back to the right the next five, next five times. Um, well, the city manager had, the city manager at the time had a big following in the community. So I remember those city council meetings were packed. It was very personal. It was not as political as it might seem. It was more about who were, who were these people that were changing the direction of the community in such a radical way? No, no question about that. And there was sort of a, a tit for tat war that broke out. What we had done at the, at the city uh, government level was then reciprocated on the parks and rec district. A lot of people uh, Carrie, Carrie Ward got caught up in that process. But yeah. let, me, let me walk people through my, my evolution on that because clearly ran as a slow, slow growth candidate. What happened is once I got elected and had a chance to meet with city staff, attorneys, things along those lines, I tell people there's a real different 
sort of mindset and level of understanding from when you're a candidate versus when you're actually <laughs> when you're actually there and you have the time and you're not totally surrounded within your bubble of everybody that thinks the same. And to me, the bottom line is that slow growth doesn't really work because Oregon's land use laws do not permit it. There, there is not a mechanism that says, Aaron, you can come in, your wife Angela can, Laurel, nope, not so much. You, you, can't, you, can't, you can't do that. Right. And right. so one of the things right off the bat is that there wasn't, there wasn't an actual mechanism that could say, we're gonna cap this at 3%. What we were told was, sure, you can go ahead and pass that ordinance, but you know what? You will be sued and you will lose and you will end up costing the money, uh, you'll end up costing the city money. The other, the other thing, and I'll come back to this in some of the later questions is, we live in, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm, someone just came to clean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk, you're gonna have to walk with me. So let's just go on a little, let's just go on a little ride. Um, so uh, what, what, what happens is we live in a free society where people are allowed to, um, buy whatever they want, sell whatever they want, um, you know, and, uh, and, 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 and it, it just, it's not reasonable for us to dictate what, what, where people can and cannot move. Plus, sorry, plus it was very difficult uh, just to essentially take, take money. And from a, from a takings perspective, a lot of the restrictions that might, we might have decided to put in place weren't going to work. And so as a result of that, I modified what I thought was reasonable from the idea of slowing growth to managing growth. How do we, how do we accommodate it? One of the things that I, that I tell people is that Oregon's land use laws with its concept of the urban growth boundary, which I'm actually very, very supportive of, it does a great job of limiting development outside the UGB. Basically, cities and, and counties are not allowed to spend any money to extend water, sewer, streets, et cetera, outside. I mean, we can go up to the edge and, and match it, but it, it really protects farmland, protects forest land, does a good job of sort of limiting development outside UGB. In return, the language is that land within the UGB has to accommodate growth. And what that means is it literally is the city's responsibility to accommodate the demands that are put on it. And given that we're a nice place to live, we have incredible access to the outdoors. You know, I, I'm probably gonna say a lot of things today that people, a lot of people aren't gonna to wanna to hear, but it's, but it's the truth. With, with COVID-19, with you know, newfound ability to work from home, the demand's gonna gonna be even stronger than it, than it ever has. And Chris, so it's gonna continue to grow. That was a long, long way to answer your question. No, it's a good jumping off point though. Like, so, I mean, for the community as it's, as it's growing now, um, what, what can a city do when you're in a situation? Like I think Bend is where it's a, it, it's certainly an issue where the rate of growth begins to outpace the ability to provide the infrastructure for that community? Is it, uh, I mean, I get the sense that the only thing that's gonna slow it down is 
traffic jams and miserable living conditions and things where people are like, hey, it's not cool anymore. Uh, you know, they didn't keep up. Well, what are your thoughts about that? Oh, I, I think there's absolute elements of that. I tell people there's not a whole lot we can do to slow the rate of growth other than to make Bend a crappy place to live. <laughs> so, but, but, but Aaron, I would, I would challenge you as, and, and this is, you know, I tell people you need to look at some things in absolute terms and some things in relative terms. I mean, what you and other people might say, oh my God, the traffic here has gotten terrible. Somebody right. coming from Seattle is like, oh my God, there's, there's no traffic here. Or, right. you know, oh my God, housing is unaffordable. Well, from the Bay Area, like housing costs nothing. And so the, the, where I went back to earlier, we're in, a, we're in a free market economy. I mean, people can move from those other places. And from, sure. their, from their perspective, Bend is really, really desirable. One of the ahas that I had um, when I first left in 2008, after sort of eight years there, and I'm, you know, these are very general numbers, but it's that, you know, a third of the people, they think Bend is, uh, you know, Bend's too, Bend's too small. It uh, doesn't have enough amenities, not enough diversity, not enough, you know, places Culture. to work, et cetera. About a third, they think Ben's just right. Kind of Goldilocks getting the right temperature porridge. A third, eh, Ben's gotten too big. I need to go find the next whitefish Idaho. It's about a third, a third, a third. And my aha was that it's still about a third, a third, a third. And what has happened is the people who felt that, and they may have gone through the cycles, people who thought the bend has gotten too big, they have moved out. And you have other people that, hey, bend is still a tiny place compared to where I where I was. And so that that was again that was a major shift in my thinking and not that i'm not sensitive to people who have been here a long time and from their perspective bend has gone to hell in a handbasket but i guess what what i try to tell people is i i want people to have an honest discussion about the pros and cons of growth what, what are the what are the disadvantages and what are the advantages and i would be the first to admit that from a purely environmental aspect um, you know, traffic, congestion, et cetera, then is, is adversely impacted as a result of that. But if you look at through a different lens of economics, you know, OSU Cascades wasn't here. Um, we've got significant increased diversity um, along the, um, uh, you know, economic spectrum. Uh, the, the amenities, the outdoor events, things along those lines, significant improvement. And so I, I simply would like to have more of a, what I'm going to call a balanced conversation, or at least people, they put their biases, you know, they wear them proudly. Okay, this is this is the lens through which I see things. And I think what I tried to do um, was, and I don't think a lot of politicians necessarily do it, I did a lot of soul searching and realized, hey, I saw things solely through the environmental lens. And as a result of talking with other people that might not have agreed with me and maybe different political persuasions, I was willing to modify my perspective. I'm not saying one lens is better than the other, but I acknowledge that there are different legitimate ways of viewing Ben's growth. So I don't know if that answers your question. It, no, it, it does. It totally answers the question. I, I don't know that. I do think there's a lot of people out there, especially in this world of cancel culture, where there's not a lot of self-reflection or people reaching across the aisle. So 
Yeah, I think what you're saying is going to, people are going to hear it and think it's um, the most radical thing that's ever come down from a former counselor. I mean, I think we're all encouraged to reach across the aisle. We're all encouraged to change our perspectives or grow into the perspectives we're hearing. I think it's a, it, it sits out there as a challenge because for the most part, I mean, you can tell from the social media comments we get at the paper, I'm sure the ones that you field, cancel culture feels a little easier, you know, it feels better to just like wipe somebody out because you don't know what, you don't agree with what they have to say. It's, it's not clear to me how, I mean, I, I will be honest, that was one reason I chose not to run again. I mean, I tell, I tell people that I like sort of being at the table um, where decisions are made but you will not find me, you know, pounding my way or the highway. That's just not my style. I have yeah. a background in public policy and policy while it's clearly related to politics, it's quite, it's quite different. Politics is about sort of raw power and how do I get what I want? Whereas policy is really trying to understand all issues, all perspectives and trying to come up with a compromise. And that's, an, I mean, the bottom line is the word compromise is seen as a good thing in a, from a policy perspective and seen as a bad thing from a politics perspective. And we've become so polarized that that's, that's not an environment in which I, in which I operate well. I'm happy to go in and work with people that have different opinions, but if people aren't willing to move, um, that's just not attractive to me. So let's talk about your perspectives on Ben's leftward shift, which we can definitely see in the last election for city council and and, and school board and Three school board. Yeah. And just the way that like the archetypes of national politics have really affected the local discourse. Yeah, I was I was surprised by that. Um, I would say uh, li literally going back to 2000, I saw really kind of a kind of a pendulum. And I think Bend had a well-deserved reputation as kind of a purple city. Um, I was expecting Bend to go back a little bit to the little bit to the right. Um, I think really 2022 will be the you know, the, the, the key to key is to whether the pendulum is broken, is broken to the left or whatever. Um, I, I clearly see some extenuating circumstances. I think there was a significant anti-Trump um, sentiment that, that was there, probably swamped a lot of other stuff. Um, I will also be uh, curious to sort of see how the, the current city council, um, how they navigate things when there will be pushback at some, at some levels. My, my, my gut sense is that they're going to realize the, the council that was there from 2018 to 2020 was, was more progressive than they thought it was. <laughs> you know, so this, is, this is sort of continuing of things and moving it. And, you know, from my perspective, I don't, I don't have a problem. And I actually am supportive of the kind of gradual movement to the left. I think having more of an emphasis on diversity, equity, and um, inclusion is, is a positive thing. I think more of an emphasis on affordable housing, multiple forms of transportation. I think those are positive. My, my concern is that if there's, if there's a lurch, there will, be, there will be a counter response at some level. And so I think the extent to which the current council can navigate this and not be seen as so, uh, so radical I mean, one of the things that going back to what we did back in 2000, I mean, we went from a one six minority to a four three 
majority. I mean, it was, let's just say that we may have felt a mandate was in place, but we certainly, we certainly didn't have a mandate at the council level. This current council, it's clearly much more progressive. I mean, you think back two years ago when Sally Russell was running as sort of the, the progressive candidate, Sally's the most conservative person on the council right now. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I'm, um, you know, I'm good friends with a number of people who are on the council right now and, and on the sidelines, happy to be either a, a coach or a sounding board or just, you know, someone who can, who can cheer them on. I, I, I will be, I will be intrigued to see where they go because like I said, I, I think the city was already aiming in that direction in a number of ways. And so I think they're making more incremental changes. I think a lot of the perceived shift might be um, sort of more, more perception than, than reality. Bruce, what do you think about, um, I mean, because you've served in politics for a while, when you have a shift like this where the council's almost, it, it's entirely blue. Yep. For the there, there are now a lot of disenfranchised voters, and I mean, it's one thing when you have a four three or a five two, even a six one, where people feel like they can come to somebody and they have an outlet. But what happens from your perspective when you know the those powers that be who actually have had a lot of influence for quite a long time are now completely shut out of the process? Yeah. I, I happen to think that's not a good thing. Um, the, the old uh, adage that, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have been a registered Democrat my entire life and I have caught a lot of flack because I have supported various Republican candidates because I'm not really about the label. I'm not an ideological person. I see a lot of similarities um, between what I'm going to call the Republican Party at the national level and the Democratic Party at the state level. I mean, they clearly, I mean, obviously, this is pre-Biden, I'm talking, but, but basically, sure. they are completely beholden to their constituents. I don't see any meaningful desire to reach out, understand, try to accommodate different, different perspectives. Um, I think it will be interesting to see if if Bend is um, perceived as really really far left, whether that will have an impact on uh, on businesses that are here. I mean, I would imagine there may be some that'll be more attractive, but I imagine there'll be others that will be less attractive. Um, you know, I think Bend has always tried to straddle this. You know, we're we're like Portland in some ways, but we definitely don't want to be like Portland. <laughs> Absolutely. One of my favorite stories, uh, John Schubert uh, was a colleague actually on city council when John and I and Kyla got elected back in 2000. And John is so bright and just does, is such a hard worker. And he knew all the stuff about, you know, progressive, all the yeah. you know, smart growth, et cetera. And he'd bring these models. And I'm like, I'm like John, you, this is Bend in 2000. You can't talk about Europe, like we can't even <laughs> talk about what Portland is doing. <laughs> you're, right. just, you're just right. too far out there for the community. We've clearly moved in that way. What John would say now was totally appropriate, but but it but it wasn't back then. I mean, Ben yeah. Ben had to evolve, and like I said, I actually like the way it has evolved. I think the issue is you don't want to be perceived as lurching. 
because then that moves people off onto, you know, they anticipate or they project a trajectory that just really seems like, you know, all hell is breaking loose. So the issue of affordable housing has become a complete broken record in city politics. Is it unreasonable to expect the city to come up with viable solutions for workforce housing? In other words, should we just accept that Bend will never be able to sustain people who don't have a nest egg? I'm gonna push back just a little on the question or I'll, I'll, or I'll roll with it. And, and if you feel like I'm not answering it, you can go ahead and ask it. We'll again. drop the hammer, Briz. We'll, just, we'll drop the hammer on you if you, if no, you no. don't come clean on this. <laughs> no. I think I think what I what I would say is it is totally reasonable to to have a serious conversation at, about what is the city's role and what is the city's responsibility. Whether one's talking about affordable housing or homelessness, you will always find me saying I think we can do more. I think in relative terms, I think we can do more to try to accommodate things along those lines. But like I said earlier. We live in a free market economy. People can continue to move here. People selling their property in California who can buy homes in Bend for cash. I mean, again, we don't have the ability to say, no, you can't do it. What has happened right now is there is a serious disconnect between the demand for housing in Bend and the supply. I mean, again, here's one of those, you're not gonna to wanna to hear what I'm saying, but, as fast as, as Bend is growing the last couple of years, we're not growing fast enough. I mean, as far, we are not building enough housing. I have an economics background. I happen to believe in the, the laws of supply and demand. You know, if you don't believe that, you don't need to listen to what I'm saying. But, but, but I do happen to believe this as an element. And so when you look back to what we were trying to do in 2008 with the expansion of the urban growth boundary, even earlier, what we were trying to do is we're trying to increase the supply of housing as a dampening effect. But we are being swamped by things that are completely beyond our control. So I guess what I would say is, is it the city's responsibility to come up with viable solutions? It's the city's responsibility to be at the table, but I don't think it's the city's responsibility to have that much. It's not, it's not the city's role to have that much responsibility in the conversation. What I tell people is, and again, I, I'm, I'm sort of making this up, I, but if, if we're not the number one, we're clearly in the top three. I tell people that, on a, on a per capita basis, city of Bend is the most effective city in the state at building affordable housing. And we're still losing ground. And right. that, what that, that tells me is there are things that are larger and certainly beyond what the city has control over. That doesn't mean we throw up our hands and can't do anything, but it means we do have a conversation. I mean, I'm transitioning a little bit into, into homelessness I think that most of the, the issue around homelessness actually is people who are who are in Central Oregon. I think it's 75 to 80%. I don't think there's a huge influx that's coming in, but that that is it's not it's not zero, you know. It's not it's not the city of Bend's responsibility to fix everybody's homelessness problems. So I think we need to do what we can. I think the other way of, that we are well, I, well let me break let me break in right there on you, Bruce. Sorry about that. I think the I think one of the issues, however, and you know, Laurel and I um, probably ask this affordable housing question every guest that comes on the program because we're continuing to scratch our heads. But 
you know, one of the one of the problems is that I don't think there are a lot of people in public policy or in politics that are saying the things that you're saying. I can say hands down every single candidate that we interviewed for the city council uh, in a, during our endorsement process was going into city, was going into politics to fix the affordable housing crisis county level, state level, it's, it's what they are sell to voters every election cycle. So naturally, I'm always very eager. I'm sure the voters are always eager to hear these incredible solutions that are about to bust forth from these new politicians coming in to set us all straight. And, um, and I have started to not, not despair, but I think, you know, people do have to start being honest that it is supply and demand. It is a, it is that kind of system. And that, I think you're right. You can see all the housing that's going up. You can see the development, but is it a, is the price of uh, a house going down in Bend? Absolutely not. I, I would argue it's not going up as fast as it would have. You know, I can't I can't prove that. But I, mean, I, I think kudos I, to us. <laughs> I, I think what you're what you're saying is I would I would say that's the distinction between a, a policy conversation versus a political conversation. I mean having solutions and the answers, that's what voters want to hear. Um, you know, and, and I would argue the other thing that I think is often missing, um, and I, I, you know, both the left and the right are guilty of this, is you, you view things and you only share, you only share aspects that, that make your point, and you don't, you don't talk about the trade-offs that are there. I mean, could, do, we, do we know what types of housing really solve um, homeless, yeah, it's called permanent supportive housing, and you put in place supportive services, et cetera. But you know what? It's ridiculously expensive. I mean, if we had another funding source to do it, we could totally solve the problem. Oh, but except for the funding source, you know, okay, well, then what, what else you got type stuff? So I think, I think I'm, I'm obviously biased. I mean, having, having been a part of the city team uh, for many, many years, but I think we are remarkably creative at trying to find what has worked well in other communities, um, what are ways that we can modify it to make it fit our needs. Um, we were the first in the state to have an affordable housing fund. It has, it has brought in leverage millions and millions and millions of dollars that we can put in to this stuff. So we're doing a lot. I think also you're going to see um, a lot of this about managing expectations. Um, is it reasonable that everybody owns a home? I don't think so. I mean, I certainly didn't own a home for the first 30 years of my life. Um, but, you know, so you're seeing- Well, you're going to start talking about Europe right here, Bruce, and you right know, we're, not ready, we're not ready to go there. <laughs> the change in the mix about, you know, do, do, does everything need to be single family home? You're seeing more apartments yeah. for both younger people that, that don't have the equity and, and don't have the higher paying jobs. But I think you're going to see hopefully a transition to, you know, sort of people on the, on the other end of the age spectrum. They don't, they don't necessarily want, or they don't have the energy to take care of a full home. And so I think we're trying to, um, you know, people could argue we're sort of the, the developers are sort of making a bet, but we're, we're assuming that the size that we need in an overly consumptive society will eventually shrink. And that for the, the, the smaller lots, um, are acceptable to people in a way that they wouldn't have been back in 2000. All right, one last question here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Central Oregon Health Council? I don't think people realize just how unique it is 
and what it does to boost the benefits of the Oregon Health Plan here in Deschutes County. So just tell us a little bit about that organization and its connection to the state and Pacific Source. Sure, I can. And I, I'm, I want to first of all say that I'm not either an employee. Of, <laughs> I've been involved with a number of their work groups and it's just it's an amazing organization that um, is involved in a number of really, really exciting initiatives. Um, in a nutshell, it is, I think, I think it's technically a nonprofit and it gets funds from the state uh, through sort of health, health dollars that come in and they are then brought back to, I'm, I'm staying very, very high level because I don't want to We only have five minutes left. Stay yeah. high level, Bruce. So basically they, they, get, they get funds from the state and they have a, a governing body that um, is, at, is at the local level comprised of elected officials and health experts and community folks. And they reinvest upstream as a way of trying to invest in preventive work. Um, they've broadened it in not only investing in sort of health issues, but they've broadened it to recognize what is called social determinants of health. Everything like homelessness, every, uh, you know, ha housing, um, education. If, you don't, if you're not in a good house, you know what? Your health is likely not to be as good as the average person. Same with, with education. They've expanded it further to try to tackle um, issues around poverty. One of the things that I love it is they're very cross-sector. They're, they're realizing health and poverty and housing, um, you know, even transportation, they're all intertwined. Um, they have a substantial amount of money. It's in the, I, I think it's, you know, 10 million, 10 million plus that they are able to give to a number of work groups that are working with a lot of the organizations right now and coming up with initiatives. Um, I actually worked on a, a recent grant proposal that was targeted at improving graduation rates for um, youth that were socioeconomically disadvantaged, basically for poor youth. How, how do you get them through high school? Because if you're, if you're a high school dropout and your family is already poor, the odds of you ever making it to the middle class, let alone higher than that, are, are infinitesimally small. And so in a nutshell, the Central Oregon Health Council, COHC, it's been around 10 years or so. Um, they've got a great website. They're also, they, they have been the major player in um, moving around, looking at how you track the data um, for a variety of, of, health, of health factors and health indicators. They have a phenomenal website, their tri-county um, effort. Um, and they have something called a regional health improvement plan, which gets updated every three to four years, really looking at, you know, what are the key um, trends that we're seeing, uh, looking at health inequality, are there certain segments of the population that aren't having as much access or are having different uh, success measures. And so they're really on top of it. I think they're one of the most effective in the state. So I'm, I'm delighted to have been a part of their work in the past. Well, Bruce, we'll put some information about the organization up with the podcast when we post it. And um, that's all we got time for today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I uh, know you're extremely busy, but um, you've done great work for the community, continue to do great work. And uh, thanks for spending time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I love this platform and I hope you get other good speakers. Thank you. All righty. Thanks, Bruce. Bye.